go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Mark 1, 35. Um, we're going to finish the chapter today. So 35 through verse 45. I'll read it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get started. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, that, those words, that phrase might be very unfamiliar to a lot of you. Um, while it was still dark, that's how early it was. He departed and went out to a desolate place. Jesus did. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, and I may preach there also. For that is why he came out. And, when he, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer your, off, your cleansing, um, what Moses commanded, for a proof to them. And he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town, but was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Lord, simply this morning, we pray that you would be near us, God. The book of James says that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us, and I pray that you would find a room full of people a church drawing near you, God, and that you would be near us this morning, Lord. We need your touch. I mean, there, I don't know, there's people that have come here from a lot of different situations, and Lord, it's asking this morning that you would minister collectively to us. I pray that you would pour out the love of the Father abroad in our hearts this morning. We need you so badly. I pray that as a church, we would love you that we would, during these gatherings, be drawn radically close to you as a community and that we, you would radically send us out in this community for the glory of God. We pray that you would, through the teaching of your word today, show us Jesus. I just submit my mind and my heart and my mouth to you and I ask God that you would teach us, Lord, that your name would be on our lips this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so for the last six weeks, we've been looking into the story of Jesus as told by Mark. And remember, Mark's goal is to show us the real Jesus, the raw, unadulterated, unmessed with Jesus, like him in a, in a raw state. And there was a lot of things going on at the time of this writing, a lot of uh, verbal things. It was all, everything was spread orally, and so the, the, the story of Jesus was spread orally, and then everyone started messing it up, giving their own interpretation of who they thought Jesus was, and so Mark wrote an account of who the real Jesus was. This was not simply a Jesus everyone is comfortable with. This is not like my buddy Jesus, or thumbs up Jesus, or my homeboy Jesus, or my rebel cult leader that justifies me to defy all social and political norms, Jesus. It's like Jesus was punk rock, therefore I could be punk rock. Jesus was anti-establishment, therefore I can be anti-establishment. It's not the Jesus that you want. It's, the, it's the, the real Jesus. And actually, you do really want this real Jesus. Mark was actually the first to scribe a written account of who Jesus was. The first one to write the genre, the gospel. 
Now, what's been really evident since we started this six weeks ago is that Jesus has come to attack and destroy the domain of darkness. That's why he's come, against the forces of evil and the works of the devil. The devil, not the devil, sorry. 1 John 3, 8, uh, we've been talking about, has um, it's a really good summary of what the book of Mark is. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Last week, we saw this guy in synagogue that had a full-on manifestation. Jesus was preaching the word, and this guy who was so spiritually damaged that a demonic power actually swallowed him up and usurped his center of his self, and it started speaking through this man. And this demon inside of him felt so threatened at Jesus' authority with the word of God that he stood up and started to make a scene. And Jesus told the demon, shut up and come out of him. Literally just told the demon, shut up and come out of him. And it convulsed him on the ground, made this huge scene, came out of him, and everybody started flipping out. Everyone was amazed and slightly afraid. And Jesus instantly became this huge hit, this huge success, this overnight success, and his fame spread super fast. What we learned about Jesus was that he possessed a supernatural authority over the demonic, over the spiritual, and he possessed this natural authority over sickness and disease. So he had this authority, this supernatural authority over demons, and he had this natural authority over sickness and disease. And what we'll learn about Jesus today is a bit about his inner life, his spiritual life, the fount, if you will, from which all his power flows. We'll see Jesus in solitude. Jesus will be in solitude, going out twice to desolate places. And then the catalyst for solitude in these two vignettes are supplication and substitution. Jesus goes out to the desolate places. The first story we'll see because of supplication, and the second story because of substitution. Jesus is getting alone in prayer and supplication to the Father, and we get a glimpse into Jesus' spiritual life. And the second story we see is Jesus driven out into solitude in a form of substitution. So the first one, supplication. Verse 35, it says, and, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who, who searched for him, they, they went out and they found him. They said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. That is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, Jesus... Um, had come right here in this point to the busiest time of his life. There was virtually no like ramp up, no momentum up to this point. He went from, from obscure carpenter working with his dad, Joseph, to the most sought-after man in the region, overnight success, literally. He preaches one sermon, casts out a demon, and then everyone in the region is at Peter's house, at his door, and he's healing everybody and casting out demons and healing sick and teaching, and he's doing all these things, and People wanted him. Everybody wanted him. Demons were afraid of him. Disciples were hunting him, literally. And where was Jesus? I mean, he had come in to the busiest time of his life. One night, one day, no one really knew about Jesus. The very next day, everybody knows about him. And the whole town's after him. And everybody wants a piece of him. 
And he's super popular. And then where can he be found? He's found praying. And Jesus woke up really early in the morning before the sun had risen to go to a desolate place and pray. Mark only records Jesus praying three times in the gospel. The, the first time is here in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 1. The second time is following the feeding of 5,000 in chapter 6. And the last one is in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14. Now, all three, uh, when Mark account, talks about Jesus praying, all three occur at night. All three are in solitary places. And all of them are in the context of opposition to Jesus' ministry when the needs of people overtake him. And so in Mark's story, when Jesus is up against opposition or people are clamoring around asking to heal him, heal me or teach me or feed me or show me a sign or wonder, Jesus goes away and he prays. It's like when, when the need gets so big around Jesus, he retreats to a desolate place and he seeks the Father. Why? Why leave at the height of popularity? Why, if you're Jesus, do you leave at the very height of your popularity? Why was Jesus, was Jesus like pulling a Costanza, like leaving you know, on a high note or something? If you don't know what that means, shame on you. But is, is that what Jesus is doing? Like, everybody loves me. Okay, I'm out. That's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to leave right now on a high note. I don't want it to dip down. I don't want to hit, see a lull. We're going to leave when it's, when it's good. What was Jesus doing here? There's a little parallel in verses 35 and 39. Look at it. It's up on the screen. Verse 35, Jesus is going out to pray. And in verse 39, Jesus is going out to preach and expel demons. He goes out to pray, and then he goes out to preach. And the parallel is this. Jesus is going out to pray is connected with his going out to preach. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first going to the source of his mission with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father compels him outward in mission. Jesus draws near to the Father, near and close to God, and by doing that, it compels him outward in mission. Or said differently, Jesus is drawn radically in, close to the Father in solitude and prayer, and then sent radically out on mission and preaching and expelling demons. This is huge. Especially in an area, we live in an area where everyone is about social justice. We've been asked that so many times. What are you as a church doing about social justice? What are you doing to feed the poor? What are you doing in this city and in the Bay Area? What are you doing? The first thing that we're doing is we're drawing radically close to God. We have to draw near to God first. Look at Jesus. The, the, The context here is Everyone wants him, and he draws near and close to the Father. Remember, Mark is showing us the real Jesus. The real Jesus is not just a social activist. He doesn't just feed the hungry or just heal the sick. He does those things. In fact, the context here is a whole town of sick people are asking for him, begging for him to come to them, and then Jesus is found in solitude praying. Jesus' primary ministry was to the Father, not to the needs or the demands of those around him. His first and foremost priority was to God. He was worshiping God. He was drawn into God first. And then as he was drawn into God, he was sent out. Jesus derives his entire ministry from a relationship with the Father. So the ministry of Jesus is first of all directed to the Father and not to the world. 
And we think Jesus has come to die for the sins of the world. That is true. But when Jesus was on this earth, he was first and foremost submitted to God. The needs of the world are recognized and brought into his ministry, but they don't set the agenda for Jesus. Now, why is this so important? This is very important for us to understand. Because if the people that were around Jesus set the agenda, he would have never left Capernaum. He would have stayed there for the duration of his ministry. If the disciples set the agenda, he would have never done things like fed the 5,000 because, because the disciples said, send them away. But Jesus said, no, you feed them. Peter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, would have built Jesus a house up there. When they were up there, Jesus, he see, the, 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 Peter, James, and John see Jesus in all of his glory. And Peter wants to build him a house. If the disciples got their way, it would have distracted Jesus from what he really came to do. If the disciples set the agenda, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. Several times in Mark's story, the disciples try to keep Jesus from going to the cross. If the disciples and the people set the agenda for Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have been Jesus. I mean, what sets the agenda for Jesus is intimacy and connectivity with God the Father. That's what sets his priority. That's what gives him this burning heart for the world is his connectivity to God the Father. And as, we're, as we serve and love our community in this city, we must stay connected to God. Remember the first time that um, I came up here to, to pray. This, is, uh, this was two years ago, almost to the day that that, that when the church started in, in January. Two years ago, uh, two years prior, before, I was up here with a, a couple other pastors and friends praying for the city. And I remember w- when I heard that, I think the Lord's calling us to, to move to San Francisco to, to, start, to start a church. We went up there and like, hey, let's get in the city and let's pray. And I was so excited. I thought, oh my gosh, this is gonna be awesome. I love that city. This is rad. And I got here and I was here for two days and I was absolutely undone. The city was too dense. There was no like parking lots and stuff like that. There's people everywhere. I didn't know where to start. I saw, we walked around the, the tenderloin and it was, I, I was like, there's too much need. I can't do this. And by day one, one and a half, my love for the city ran out. And my love for everything I wanted to do for the city ran out and it ran dry and cold. And I'm like, I can't do it. I'm not going to that city. There's no way in the world I'm going. And then I stopped talking for like a, like a week. I didn't take a vow of silence. I was just, I just couldn't talk. I was speechless. And my friends would call me, what's wrong with you? Why have you gone dark? What has happened to you? You're not yourself. I come home with like this glare over my face. And my wife was like, what is wrong with you? And I realized I can't, I, I don't have enough love to love that city myself. There's no way. And after praying, what I first had to realize was God's love for me to save me to call me to, to know God's love and then get God's heart for the city because my love runs out. My patience runs out. My joy runs out. So there has to be a fount that's a little bit bigger than my heart. There has to be some source that's a little bit bigger than my little heart to go, I- I'm gonna change that city. We're gonna go there and do this thing. There has to be something bigger than that. 
than, than a motivational talk or, or somebody to come alongside you and go, you could keep doing it, keep loving that city and change it. There's no way. And as Jesus was in ministry, as Jesus came and humbled himself to be a man, he saw his connectivity to the Father as everything, as paramount. The only way he can do anything is his connectivity with the Father. And that's our ministry as well. If we want to love this city, if we truly want to love this city, we must stay connected to the source. We must stay connected to the fount. What was happening here is Jesus was the first man to actually live out the Shema, to actually live out Deuteronomy chapter 6. He was the only real man to walk on earth and to live out what what the, the Hebrew people recited multiple times every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. Here was Jesus actually doing this. He wasn't loving, he was loving God the Father first and placed him in priority first. So when the needs and the demands pressed around him, he could confidently say, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. Oneness and nearness to God compels him now onward in mission. He wakes up early. I don't know how many hours of sleep he got, maybe just a couple. Woke up early before anyone else was up. Went to a desolate place. Again, we talked about that at the very beginning um, when Jesus went into the wilderness. He went to the wilderness again, and there he sought God. And as he draws near to the heart of God, he is now compelled on in mission. And you hear what he said there? This is interesting. Jesus said, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. He wanted to preach there. Preach. Why preach when you can heal? Why preach when you can restore the blind or feed the hungry? With a whole town of people waiting to make you the next Israeli idol, why preach? Why do that? There are a lot of modern-day critics of preaching. Actually, there's a, a concentrated mass, mass of uh, Christian leaders in cities like San Francisco who criticize preaching, who say preaching is passe and people don't get saved through preaching anymore. Someone has actually called preaching an echo from an abandoned past. And they say, we don't need preaching anymore. We need action and we need conversation and we need dialogue. And I agree with all of those. But they say, we don't need the conventional preacher guy with his mic and his audience. That doesn't work anymore. Now, there have always been critics of preaching. 250 years ago, when great open-air preaching of George Whitfield and the Great Awakening was going on, there were critics. There have always been critics to preaching. But this is what critics to preaching have to consider. What they are ridiculing is the very work God used to turn the world upside down. Jesus preached. His disciples were sent by him to preach. Their disciples were sent to preach, and so on and so on. And why did Jesus preach? Why did Jesus wake up super early, seek the Father in prayer, and get up and leave behind a town of people who were ready to go, who were ready for him to heal him, to go somewhere else and just preach? Because not only would Jesus meet felt needs, Jesus would meet those needs people didn't even know they had. He wouldn't just meet those needs that, hey, I need this. Jesus knew he would meet needs that people didn't even know they had. Preaching has a way to meet unfelt needs and unknown needs. 
Preaching has a way of unearthing those needs you never knew were there. And the inbreaking kingdom of God has much to do with the ministry of the word as it did with the ministry of deeds. Word and deed, as we talked about last week. Jesus' purpose is not to simply heal as many people as possible as a manifestation of the kingdom of God, but to confront men with a demand for a decision in the perspective of God's absolute claim upon their life. Jesus did not come just to heal as many people as possible. He, he has come to say, repent and believe in the gospel. See, poor people, hungry people, sick people are very aware of their needs. They need to be fed, they need provision, and they need healing. And not just them. Think about this. You and I have needs. You, you've come in here and walked through these doors, and you have felt needs, needs that you know are there. Some of you in here need a job. You've been looking, you're looking around, I know of people, you're like a felt need is I need a job or I need a relationship. You're starving for a community or you have a financial need or maybe even a physical need. There's something physically wrong with you. You have this felt need and you have those needs and they're felt and they're real and they're there all the time. But by the Spirit of God, what preaching does is unearths those, need, unearths those needs that you don't know you really had. I mean, who walks down the street and has this thought, oh my gosh, I need to be reconciled to God. I'm under the righteous wrath of a loving God, and if I don't repent, I will suffer under the wrath of God for all eternity. Who thinks that? No one. You walk down the street and go, I need a sandwich. Like right now, I need a sandwich. Or I need a coffee right now. Those are felt needs. You don't walk down the street and go, oh my gosh, I am under the wrath of God. You don't do that at all. And what preaching does, and the preaching of God's word, is it unearths those needs that you didn't know were really there. I mean, you, right now it's almost noon. You're probably thinking, my felt need right now is I'm hungry. And Jesus know your felt need right now is you need Jesus. And those things, you don't really, sometimes you don't feel those needs. Jesus doesn't just meet felt need. He does do that. We see that throughout all the book of Mark. But he meets needs you didn't know were there. Jesus came into this world to serve. Mark 10. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it wouldn't be loving or service if Jesus didn't meet the whole of our needs. Body and spirit, physical and spiritual, felt and unfelt. Sometimes we don't know how deep our needs really are. We didn't know that we had this root of bitterness deep inside our hearts against someone and it's kind of buried itself there and it's actually ruining all of our present relationships. And your felt need might be something like, I, need, I just need a good relationship right now. But Jesus was like, no, you need to be healed and that root of bitterness needs to be uprooted and you need to forgive. It's not so much that you need a relationship with someone, you need a relationship with Jesus. And that's what the ministry of the Word of God does. It goes down deeper than felt need. I mean, you could be here so bitter and so jaded, and you're like, this is what, this is what I need. I need answers to what's gone on in my life. And Jesus is coming in here and going, you need faith, like a child, to trust. You don't know your needs a lot of the time, what you really need. 
And the ministry of the word does that. It goes beyond those felt needs that you didn't even know were there, and Jesus meets those needs too. And then we see that exemplified in this next section. Look at verse 39. Verse 39, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This man had leprosy. Now, in context of the Bible, leprosy encompassed a wide variety of chronic skin diseases, a huge variety of chronic skin diseases. This disease was so nasty, surrounding this disease was all this superstition and all this fear. If someone had leprosy, there was all this superstition about the person, and there was all this fear. It was like, it was like lepers were zombies, if zombies were real. I mean, you might believe that zombies are real, but they're, they're not. Um, but if zombies were real, all the superstition, all the fear wrapped around zombies, that's, that's what it would be like. I mean, imagine if there were like real zombies that lived in this city. Like there would be a lot of things around those people that would strike fear. Get this. Lepers at the time of Jesus were called by rabbis the living dead. They were literally, literally called the living dead. And to heal a leper was as hard as raising the dead. This is part of the reason why. Leviticus 13. The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Get a, a mental image here. A leper with just a skin disease must wear torn clothes and let their hair be unkempt, cover their lower part of their face, and cry out aloud, unclean, unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean, and he must live alone, and he must live outside the camp. It's the start of a great horror movie. This is what a leper was. Leprosy was contagious, horrible to look at, and wasn't just skin deep, but affected deep down into the nervous system, even down into the bones. So someone with leprosy had not just an illness, but had a sentence. Leprosy wasn't simply an illness, it was a sentence. And the purpose was to protect the health of the community from infection. But this, le- this left the leper as a victim of far more than just your skin falling off and wearing torn clothes and your hair was all like ratted out and stuff. This was way more than that. The social consequences of leprosy were you lost your name, you lost your occupation, you lost your habits. You lost your family, and you lost your worshiping community if you had leprosy. And whenever they did show up in public, they had to make a huge scene. They had to yell unclean as loud as they could as they walked the streets so nobody would touch them. So you can imagine a leper walking through the city and children running for their lives, so afraid of lepers, people clearing the way, no one wanting to get around a leper at all. And then... A leper could not touch anyone. Think about that. Human touch being absolutely gone. Imagine not being able to touch your wife, your husband, ever again. Or to hold your kids. Or to smell your little baby. Or to hug your mom or whatever. Or to even shake someone's hand. There was zero physical contact. 
and not being able to feel human affection and touch. See, other sicknesses and illnesses had to be healed, but leprosy had to be cleansed. Leprosy was nasty and gnarly, and it was, and it was pretty rampant then as well. And look what this leper does. He breaks every law and custom by what he hears Jesus is capable of doing. I mean, if this man can cast out, and I don't know how the leper heard about Jesus, but if he's thinking, if this man can cast out demons and heal the sick, why not try it? Why not risk everything and try it? At this point in Mark's story, Jesus hasn't healed a leper. It's a risk. That leprosy was the worst of the worst diseases. This was a risk. He's never heard of Jesus healing a leper before. This man's not just sick with a fever or has like a runny nose. He's unclean. And the second time we see this word so far in this chapter, unclean. The first one, remember Jesus casting out that demon, that unclean spirit, and here this man has an unclean body. There was not many other words as bad to the Jewish ear than unclean. And he falls at Jesus' feet and implores him and says, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will. Not if you can, if you will. This leper has faith in Jesus' ability. His only question is his willingness. Will you make me clean? And next it says that Jesus is moved with pity. I don't know if he locked eyes with this leper or what, ha- what happened. This leper has not felt touch, human compassion for years. And Jesus looks at him with compassion, which can only explain what he does next. He touches him. You don't touch lepers. You're not supposed to touch lepers. You're not allowed to touch lepers. It's socially, it's against the law. It's not socially acceptable, and it's unlawful. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus didn't have to touch this man. Jesus can heal with a word. Jesus can heal with a twinkle of his nose. He can heal with a wave of his hand. He can heal, he can heal with a thought, a word, a Anything. He can heal simply by saying, get up and walk. But he touches him. The leper thought he only needed to be cleansed, but Jesus knew he needed to be touched. His disease was more than skin deep. There was something that needed to happen emotionally with him, and Jesus is being moved with pity and willing to go there. He touched him. But look at what's happening. This is huge. Look at what's happening. There's a reversal of power that's happening with the inbreaking kingdom of God. Because it's always been that the unclean contaminates what's clean, always. If something's unclean, it always contaminates what is clean. Haggai chapter 2. This is a weird word picture, but I'll read it. Thus says the Lord of hosts Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, that's a weird word. That's just weird, okay? Anyway, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with the fold a bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? So if he has holy meat in his shirt and he touches bread, does that holy meat make the bread holy? And they say, no. And then verse 13, Haggai said, if someone is, who is unclean by contact with a dead body, remember, lepers were called the living dead, a dead body, touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. See, the story of the Bible up to this point right here, 
what is holy cannot make what is unholy holy. Does that make sense? What is holy, if it touches something unholy, doesn't make it holy. It makes the holy unholy. And what is unclean makes what is clean unclean. This has always been the case. But now, the kingdom of God has broke in and brought a reversal of power. Purity and cleanliness can be maintained without sectarianism, without withdrawal, without separation. When pure and impure touch now, when clean and unclean meet, the power of purity is greater in Jesus. This is totally different. This never has happened before. Jesus comes in with the story of a greater power than the power of uncleanness, of sin, of death, of decay. So what's pure can now touch what's impure and make it pure. So what does this mean practically? That we go down to Columbus and Broadway with Jesus? Like we go to the, like, go party with Jesus now? No, that's not the kingdom of God. However, working to abolish something like sex trafficking in the city is the inbreaking kingdom of God. And you might get yourself into situations that are less than churchy, and you might be with some very messy people, but the power of Jesus is greater than the power of sin and uncleanness. All of a sudden now, you don't have to retreat and put a fence around your house and keep everything vile away. All of a sudden, you could be bringing the kingdom of God into the most vile of places. And not only can you maintain your purity, you can be part of advancing purity. Unclean can be made clean now. This is something entirely different. This is what the inbreaking kingdom of God does. Jesus now touches something unclean, and not only does he not become unclean, but he makes what's unclean clean. How is this possible? Where does Jesus, what, what, where does the filth go? What happens to all this decay and all this filth? Where does the uncleanness go? Does Jesus just speak it away? It's like poof and gone. Where does it go? By touching the leper, Jesus was saying, I am prepared to become, by choice, what you are by nature. A man under the judgment of the law, under the sentence of death, in order to share with you what I have, freedom in life. Jesus was saying, I am, by touching you, I am becoming what you are by nature, I am becoming by choice. What Jesus is showing here is that the, what the inbreaking kingdom of God does through identifying himself with our sin, bearing our judgment and law, the law of God upon himself. Because look, look at, look at what, what it says in verse 44. Jesus touches them and says, see that you say nothing to anyone but go and show yourself to the priests and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter into a town, but he was out in desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, again, we see this uh, messianic secret motif that we've talked about. Jesus says, don't tell anyone about me, but go to the priest and get yourself a clean bill of health. Now, this secret motif comes up again and again in Mark's story, and here's why. Jesus cannot be simply known as a purveyor of power. Whether supernatural or natural or political, in Mark's narrative, Jesus can only be rightly understood as the Son of Man who surrenders his power in order to suffer and die. So the cross 
becomes the controlling symbol for interpreting Jesus' identity. You want to know who Jesus really is, Mark is saying? Then look at the cross. And we see a little foreshadow of it right here. Because this leper is so stoked on his new baby smooth skin that he tells everybody about it. He's telling everybody, like, Jesus told me I have to tell you, but he's right over there. He was over there. He healed me. Remember me? Remember me, unclean guy? Look at me. Look at this. Touch the skin. I'm awesome now. And he's telling everybody about Jesus. And now, what happens is everyone goes after Jesus, and Jesus can no longer enter to a town. Mark began his story with Jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside. And at the end of the story, Jesus is on the, in the desolate places on the outside, and the leper gets in. Jesus and the leper have traded places. So you have a little foreshadowing here of what Jesus does on the cross. He takes our cross, our punishment, our shame. In the first section, we saw Jesus going to a desolate place for supplication to the Father, And then here, Jesus is driven to the desolate places in substitution for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, you might have needs today that you never knew you had until you walked into this building this morning. The need to be reconciled to God. The need to be made clean and whole. And that's what Jesus is doing as he's bringing in the kingdom of God. He is showing the world, I am taking your sin and your shame upon me. And he can touch, and at his word, he can make clean. He can make something that is previously unclean clean by the power of God, and that's what he does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your, the power of the kingdom of God, that it breaks in, and that it can break into this city, God, and it can heal people. It can set people right, people that are so lost and jaded and struggling and hopeless, God. You can come in, and you bring wholeness and purity by taking our sin and our shame upon the cross. We thank you, God. We are in awe that you would do this. And Lord, um, we just pray really practically right now that you would, uh, that you would minister to us, God. That this is all just information until you apply it to our hearts. This is all just a story until you make us live in this story. I pray that you do that now, God, that you draw us close to you, that we would have that sort of ridiculous type of faith that this leper had to risk it all and throw ourselves at your feet. Lord, I believe that you have the power to save you have the power and we see here that you are willing God you really do want to heal people I pray that you administer to us now we love you God